spend some more time singing and building by God's grace to the end as we come to focus particularly on Jesus and our relationship with him. We begin as we give heed to the word of God here in Exodus chapter 35 and let's ask the Lord's direction as we look into the word. Father, we ask that you will feed us, that you will guide through these hymns that we sing, these songs of praise. And I pray, Father, that as we now look into the Word and as we continue to do so throughout this time that we have together, please allow us in your merciful grace to heed the Word as it is given and to discern what your Spirit is saying to your church today. Work with us through these long words, this lengthy section. And I pray, Father, that it would not miss us what you are revealing here, that you will help us to labor faithfully under the word, and through all that we do this day, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be lifted up. It is in his name that we pray, amen. There is a vast difference between planning an outcome and actually getting it done. Many worthy plans and good intentions die on the drawing board because people fail to follow through. And this is really, isn't it, a major issue in the Christian life. It's absolutely vital that we grow in our knowledge of what God wants of us as His people. We must read the Bible. We need to meditate prayerfully upon it to understand its meaning to us. The local church is to be a Bible-teaching body, instructing believers in the truth of God's Word. But knowing what God wants us to do and doing it constitutes two distinct issues, doesn't it? In this final analysis, God does not bless those with a head full of truths about who He is and what He requires. God blesses those who know what He requires and get it done. And what joy there is when a community of believers comes together with a clear vision of what God wants and then works with zealous energy to get it done together. We witness such a mission accomplished in chapters 35 through 39 of Exodus. Now we need to remember as we've come to this place, and if you'd like to, you can turn back to chapter 25. You don't need to do that necessarily, but just remember as you page through or think through, chapters 25 through 31... God meets with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and details plans for the construction of a sanctuary where God will dwell among his people Israel on their journey to the promised land, which God has promised four centuries earlier to the people of Israel. But while Moses meets with God on the mountain, what is going on at the bottom of the mountain? Israel is falling into gross sensuality and debauchery through spiritual impatience. They get tired of waiting for God and come up with worship of their own, which leads to degeneracy. So while God is meeting with Moses on the mountain, Israel is running her own course, and it is a time of tremendous sin. What's chapter 33? After 32 in this great sin, chapter 33, chapter 34, Moses intercedes for Israel and pleads with God that he would spare the nation the judgment that she deserves. God threatens in 33 and verse 3, I will not go with them, lest I judge them in the way. 
But through Moses' prayer and intercession, verse 14 of this same chapter, 33, we find God's promise, I will go with them. My presence will go with them. Or literally, again, my faces will go before them. God will dwell with his people through Moses' intercession. This is the conclusion. Now we come to 35 through 39. This large chunk, and really into chapter 40. We won't look at chapter 40 today. But in this large chunk of scripture, we go right back to the tabernacle. And now what is planned is constructed. This construction effort is no footnote in the text of scripture, you will notice. Look at chapter 35. And chapter 36, and 37, and 38, and 39, we go through all of these details again about the tabernacle. This is no footnote. In fact, we have a near repetition of chapters 25 through 31. Whenever the Bible does that, we really need to stop and think. Now, I know for many of us, and I know in my own life at times, reading through these passages of Scripture now through many years, over and over again, going through all of this, don't you always ask, do we really need to read about the hooks? Is this really vital that we read about the bases in this tabernacle and exactly how it's constructed and why is all of this so important? Would it not be possible for the Bible to summarize a bit here? Yes, it's very possible. Indeed, how many times are we frustrated on the other side of things and say, why, God, didn't you say more? We really would like to know more about this section of Scripture. Think in this very book, the life of Moses, the first 80 years are told in one short chapter. Now we come to chapters 25 through 31 and all of this detail about the tabernacle, and then God does it again. Chapter 35 through, chapters 35 through most of 40, dealing with the construction and erection of this tabernacle, and we get it all again. All the hooks, all the rings, all the poles, all the bases, all the, the entrances, the whole thing. we got to stop. We've got to stop and think, why does God spend that much ink? on telling it all over again within a couple of chapters. The big deal here is that God is dwelling with his people. And he's dwelling with his people here at this tabernacle, at this tent, in a most unusual way. And so what we have, beginning in chapter 35, is a retelling of all of it. But now it's not what you will do now the retelling of it is, here is what was done. The tabernacle is constructed. And where does it all begin? Before anything happens, before any construction actually takes place, everything's just in blueprint form at this place. In fact, Israel is rejoicing through Moses' intercession that she even has a chance with God now at this place. But where does it all begin? It begins where it started. God reminds Israel to hallow his name. Notice chapter 35 and verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. We're not going to mess around with this rule. 
This is an absolute rule of life and death. You shall not even kindle a fire in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. You will rest and hallow the name of the Lord. Now it's fitting that this second reference to Sabbath law prefaces the tabernacle's construction. Go back, if you will, to 31 and verse 12. In chapter 31 and verse 12, we have a section there through verse uh, 17. We have a section here again on the Sabbath. This comes, if you're following, chapters 25 through 31, this comes where? All of the details about tabernacle and then a mention of Sabbath. Then the sin of chapter 32, the restoration of 34 and 35, and guess where it all starts? The Sabbath. So the Sabbath bookends this whole section of Israel's sin and rebellion against God. Sabbath comes at the end of the details of construction and now comes at the beginning when that construction is actually pulled off by the Israelites. So after Israel's horrifying sin, she's back on track with the mandate to find her rest in God alone. And before she creates holy space then, she is reminded of her responsibility to mark holy time. Even construction on this tabernacle is to stop weekly to hallow the name of God. So having reset Israel's focus on the Sabbath, it is now time to act on the instructions delivered in chapters 25 through 31. Let's hear it all again. Remembering as we plow through, God did this twice. He wrote these details down twice. There's a reason. This will take some effort on our part, but let's honor the word and consider carefully what we're reading. Verse 4 of chapter 35. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. We have here the raw materials, They will be supplied how? By the free will gifts of God's people. And among those people are individuals God has endowed with the skills to craft those raw materials into a sanctuary. Verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table and its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lamp stand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and its cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests 
Having received these instructions from Moses, the people returned then to their tents, and having given what is necessary to bring about this work, we'll read more on that later, but what will the people do is the question now. We've heard of all of this before. This tabernacle is to be produced, and Israel is to bring together these raw materials and to construct it, but what will they do? This is still all theory at this point. Verse 21, verse 20, Then the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, so apparently they go back to their tents, and verse 21, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. These are beautiful words. They came. They're crucial words to this section of Scripture. They did what God called them to do. And the text itself will bring this out as the emphasis. It gets, it's exciting to think of this. All of these Israelites going back now after their sin and now in a restoration, in a place of restoration with God. But as they go back to their tents, the Spirit of God moves among them and they begin to come. They begin to bring their uh, gifts to the Lord and to the construction of this tabernacle. Verse 22, so they came. Again, an important emphasis. You notice in verse 21, they came. Verse 22, so they came. Both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets. All sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and every one who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen of goat's hair or tan ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and with all and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate, breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. The Hebrew text here in verse 22 literally reads that every man waved a wave offering of gold to the Lord perhaps in some symbolic way, raising all of their gifts and showing it to the Lord and giving it then there at this place where the construction begins. And that construction begins at verse 30. Well, then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son 
of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. People are coming with the supplies. And they're coming to these unique individuals who will teach others also as God gives unique ability to craft these ideas, these, these concepts, these plans. You notice here, it's not only in craftsmanship, but in teaching. They have teaching skills as well. There are strong verbal parallels in this section in verses 30 through 35 to the creation of the world. There is the Spirit of God's presence here, and there is the skill or the wisdom by which God creates. And he gives that to these individuals uniquely. Bezalel and Aholiab, verse 1 of chapter 36. And every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. Contributions closed. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. What a beautiful scene, isn't it? Like a productive beehive. The Israelites are abuzz with energetic labor for God. Throughout the camp, the Spirit is moving. And you notice here, it's those who give as well as those who work. It's the Spirit of God who moves them to get involved. There's no mandate here. There's no law here. There's no conscription of workers. They're simply stirred within to say, I want a part of this action. I want to be part of the work of God and to pour out my abilities that God has given to me or to pour out the gifts that I have to see this work carried forward. How many churches would love to be in this spot? People, would you please stop giving? We've had enough. We really don't need anymore. I know it's a little different. They're bringing physical things. But imagine it. They don't even need any more. I think there is a principle here. It is really, as we compare with other passages of scriptures, God's nature to supply His people with the resources necessary to carry out any work that he intends for us to do. Now, we all feel short in the area of resources. We do as a church, we do as individuals in various ways in our life. God always supplies what we need to carry out what he wants us to do. Now, we have to hasten to say, he doesn't supply that by dropping it in our laps. He moves by his spirit within the hearts of his people to give and to act and to work and to do what he's called them to do. And there's all kinds, aren't there? Particularly here, those who rise to the top are those who are able physically with their hands to construct and to work. God gives them the Spirit. 
The Spirit of God works uniquely upon these individuals to use their physical capacities to create sanctuary for God, for the Israelites to meet in His presence. Now as we come to verse 8, the actual construction is reported. Again, here it's all the materials that are being made, not the tabernacle being assembled as such or erected, but the, but the materials are being made. Verse 8, And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherry beans skillfully worked, that is, designed into the fabric. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain was 4 cubits. All the curtains were of the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to the other with clasps, so the tabernacle was a single whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain was four four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain, and he made fifty clasps of bronze to couple the tent together, that it might be a single whole, and he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins. Then he made the upright frames of the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and the two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top. At the first ring, he made two of them this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under each frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end, halfway up the frames, and he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen and cherubim skillfully worked into it. He made it. 
And for it he made four pillars of acacia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold, and he cast for them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And its five pillars and, its, and their hooks he overlaid their capitals and their fillets with gold, but their five bases were of bronze." When we journeyed our way through chapters 25 through 31, a little more slowly than we'll pass through this today, we took some time to go through all of uh, these pieces of construction. But remember simply, if we miss a lot of this, and in fact some of it is un- we, we can't understand. We don't have enough information to know particularly how it looked. But as you see on this graphic here, the, the overall uh, uh, tabernacle, uh, pictured from above in this place. We don't have the inner, the inside, but basically there's these footings that are made of metal and set down on the ground. And then wood poles that go down into them and are held up. And the whole structure is created something like a tent today. You go camping, you get out the tent, and it really works slick and fast these days. This didn't work quickly, but you're basically doing the same thing. You're stabilizing the framework of this building. All of this will be something possible of disassemblage, right? They're going to be moving from time to time, and so they can set it all up and tear it all down. It is a tent. It is a tabernacle. And the the structure is described here. We don't have time to recall all that we studied there, but let's remember of the dimensional distinction throughout this building and also the material distinction. The closer you are to the Holy of Holies, there is gold and there is fine fabric. As you move out to the covering structure, the fabric becomes less uh, exquisite. And as you move away from the Holy of Holies and the holy place, the materials go from gold to silver and from silver to bronze, always moving away from that holy place over the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God will reside. But again, all of that is plan. Now, all of these plans are being brought to reality. Israel is doing it. She is getting it done. The tabernacle is being completed. The shields are there, the entrances are there, the coverings are there, the structure is there, the framing is there. All of this being made as God's people assemble together and pool their resources and use their skills to build this tabernacle. We're going to take a break. As we do this, please, the goal and the purpose of the structure of this service today is to lead us to the person of Jesus Christ. This is not a commercial break. Now, it may serve that function in our brain slightly. I hope that it will, indeed, because eyes begin to glaze over after about chapter 3. But these words that we sing are words as God's people and are all grounded in some fashion or other in this unique tabernacle because they point to the person of Jesus who came and tabernacled among us. So let's sing as believers in Christ. Seated, and let's return. What tremendous words, so fitting to what we're reading, what we're considering here today. But let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 37. 
As we deal now with the tabernacle furniture, we'll flash some pictures up that will perhaps give a little bit of an idea of what these things look like. There, there is discrepancy among depictions because there's not enough text for us to truly understand exactly how these pieces look, but these are artist renditions or, or attempts to uh, give us at least some visual sense of what these pieces look like. We'll just flash these up as we read through, but let's note the text of Scripture 37 and verse 1. This tabernacle now will be fitted with appropriate furniture to speak to Israel and her worship of the Lord. Verse 1, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for its four rings of gold, for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold, these two angels, and he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Again, we have not time to stop and to analyze the vital importance of this piece of furniture, but the most exquisite, the most holy. For over this ark, the presence of God will hover and dwell among the people of God. These angels serving as something of the base and also within that ark is the Word of God. And on this uh, flat top, or what is referred to as a seat, blood will be placed for the atonement of the people. This propitiatory place, this mercy seat, a crucial element in our understanding of Christ. And then the table. He also made a table of acacia wood. Verse 10, two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height, and he overlaid it with pure gold, and made a molding of gold around it, and he made a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and he made a molding of gold around the rim. They're guessing in this depiction as to what that molding perhaps looked like. It's uh, again, not known, but he cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at the four legs. Close, close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. Again, these, the priests would put this on their shoulders and carry it, never touching the table as such. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes of incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. Again, a sign of the fellowship that Israel had in the presence of God among probably many other things that we do not know as far as the symbolism. The lampstand, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. That is, these, these buds and, and various um, designs on the arms of the, uh, of, the, um, light of the lampstand. 
and verse 18, and there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it, three cups made of almond blossoms, each with a calyx of, and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it, The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold, and he made it seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold, and he made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. Very sizable amount, uh, approximately 75 pounds of pure gold. The altar of incense. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its moldings on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. And then the altar of burnt offering, this altar of incense, of course, to uh, create a smell within, a, a pleasing aroma within the tabernacle area and picturing it would appear the prayers of God's people as they ascend to the Lord. The burnt offering, the altar of burnt offering, verse 1 of 38, he made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood. Five cubits was its length and five cubits its breadth. It was square and three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it and he overlaid it with bronze. And he made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all its utensils of bronze. And he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings on the sides of the altar to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. So it's transportable. When you look at it in a graphic like this, it looks like it weighs about 10 tons. Uh, you're not going to budge that thing. But in fact, it's, it's hollow and is easily disassembled and moved to an, another location. But here, of course, is where the sacrifices will be offered. And here with the bronze uh, in, in its distance from the Holy of Holies, there's a sense of more earthiness. And here is, is where those animals will be laid and, and slaughtered for the sins of God's people. There is then a bronze basin, which is hidden by the graphic that we have here, sadly, but uh, just a, uh, something like a big, huge birdbath. It seems to be something of the shape of it. We find that in verse 8. He made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And here's one of those places you say, please tell us more about that. Who are these women? What are they doing? Just a quick reference to them. It's not vital to the understanding of the tabernacle. But 
it is interesting to see that it, they use their mirrors for the creation of this altar. Now, obviously, we're not talking glass mirrors. We think mirror, only one thing comes to our mind, and that's a glass mirror. But for them, it was bronze that was polished uh, very carefully such that you could view yourself in the reflection. It's these mirrors that all of these women, assembling them all together, bring to this place and they provide enough for this bronze altar to be uh, created by the craftsmen. Very interesting note here for us. Verse 9 of 38, Now the court is set up. And he made the court for the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars and their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets were of silver. For the north side there were hangings of a hundred cubits. Their twenty pillars, their twenty bases were of bronze, but the hooks and the pillars and their fillets were of silver. Again, we see the diminishing of the quality of, of metal as it moves away from the inner sanctum. Verse 12, And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their ten pillars and their ten bases. The hooks and of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the front of the east, fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate were fifteen cubits with their three pillars and, their, and three bases. And so for the other side. On both sides of the gate of the court were hangings of fifteen cubits with their three pillars and their three bases. All the hangings around the court were fine twined linen, and the bases for the pillars were of bronze. But the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. The overlaying of their capitals was also of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the screen for the gate and the court were embroidered with needlework in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It was 20 cubits long and five cubits high in its breadth and corresponding to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four in number. Their four bases were of bronze, their hooks of silver, and their overlaying of their capitals and their fillets of silver. And all the pegs for the tabernacle and all the court all around were of bronze." anybody understood all of that, please talk to me later. There's, uh, it, it's, it's not easy to follow and know exactly what's being done, but we have the basic picture, the basic idea. The, the thing about the graphic in front of us here that I really don't like is the dimension is, is, is uh, skewed. Remember, we have also a dimensional sense of the holiness of God. What is the Holy of Holies? It is that perfect cube. But as we move away, the dimensions are expanded and are elongated and are less than ideal and less than perfect. So with the metals themselves, with the space itself, there is this constant reminder that the center is the Holy of Holies and over that Ark of the Covenant, which itself is not a perfect cube. But the space is the presence where God will reside in the presence of his people. Verse 21 of chapter 38, These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded at the commandment of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron the priest, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab and the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. Whatever that means. We don't have shekels. And so that doesn't hit us. What it should, it should hit us in this way. Your mouth drops open. 
This is an amazing amount of gold. I'll get to that in just a moment. But silver, verse 25, from those of the congregation who were recorded was the hundred talents and 1775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary, a becca, a head that is half a shekel by the shekel of the sanctuary for everyone who was listed in the records from 20 years old and upward for for 603,550 men. Something of a sanctuary tax. The hundred, verse 27, talents of silver were of casting, were for casting the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil. A hundred bases for the hundred talents, a talent, a base. And of the 1775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their capitals and made fillets for them. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. With it, he made the bases for the entrance of the tent of meeting and bronze and altar and the bronze grating for it and all the utensils of the altar. The bases around the court and the bases of the gate of the court, all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs around the court. So we have here the tabernacle materials are reported Estimates vary a bit because we don't know even now exactly what a shekel was. But the approximation, and all approximations come fairly close to this, is that we have seven tons of metal here. Seven tons of metal. This was a tremendous gift on the part of the Israelites. Certainly doable with the number that they had, but it was a tremendous gift. And then we think also the fact that they brought more than was needed. It's an amazing figure. 2,000 pounds of gold goes into this structure, into the creating of this furniture and this structure. It was a tremendous gift. It was a tremendous work. It was an exquisite place. It was the place on earth that God would meet with his people. And it was, above all things, holy. It was the holiness of God that is brought to bear in the minds of the people who worship here. God is holy, and we are sinners. And Israel is bringing it all and constructing it in this way. Let's stop and let's sing in response as we consider further this word from God. Praise has been transformed from the praise of the Israelites here at the tabernacle, and now knowing Christ crucified and risen, but how our praise will be transformed when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ Himself. We continue, and as we think of the priestly function clearly pointing to Christ, there is the priestly responsibility that is assigned by God within the nation of Israel. In chapter 39, we have the preparation or the clothing of these priests. Again, all of this very carefully worked out to draw attention to the glory of God, to His holiness, and probably, again, symbolism that we don't really understand fully. The 39 in verse 1, From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns they made finely woven garments. For ministering in the holy place, they made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. I've not mentioned anything yet to this point, but now this phrase will begin to repeat itself more and more. If you've ever listened to a great classic work in song, there's sometimes a theme 
there at the beginning of this musical piece, and that theme begins to repeat itself more and more as you come to the final climax. And we have that happening here with this phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. We found it numerous times already. It's maybe passed us without thinking, but all of this according to the command of the Lord. And I'd like you to watch as we go through chapter 39. The repetition of this phrase, they made the holy garments for Aaron, and the repetition, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 2, he made the ephod of gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and they hammered out the gold leaf, and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and into the fine twine linen and skilled design. So the gold is hammered out and then cut into ribbons that are woven into the fabric. It must have been exquisite fabric to have this gold in it like that. They made, verse 4, for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at the two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And he set them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod to be stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the breastpiece in skilled work in the style of the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It was square. They made the breastpiece doubled a span, its length and a span, its breadth when doubled. So this piece of fabric is doubled over, creating a pocket at the bottom. And they set it in four rows of stones, and they set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardis, topaz, carbuncle was the first row, and in the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in settings of gold filigree. If your text, if your translation used a different word, that is because some of these stones, the identity is not entirely known to us, though all the stones are the same. Sometimes the words get shifted a bit. But this obviously is one expensive piece. There were, verse 14, 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They were like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And they made on the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breast piece. And they put the two cords of gold and the two rings at the edges of the breast piece. They attached the two ends of the two cords to the two settings of filigree. That is holding them up and kind of showing, uh, showing them off as such. Thus they were attached in it. It, they attached it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Then they made two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breast piece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And they made two rings of gold and attached them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it should lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breast piece should not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. He also made the robe of the ephod woven all of blue, and the opening of the robe in it was like the opening of a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear, on the, something like a poncho. 
And on the hem of the robe they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe between the pomegranates. A bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, around the hem of the robe for ministering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons, and the turban of fine linen, and the caps of fine linen, and the linen undergarments of the fine twine linen, and the sash of the fine twine linen, and a blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework, as the Lord had commanded Moses. They made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And they tied to it a cord of blue to fasten it on the turban above, as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses in pieces. They didn't you know, lift it all up intact. But they bring it in pieces to him. Verse 33, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bases, its pillars and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen and the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stands, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, Bases and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. All this being brought to Moses to inspect. The finely worked garments of ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Now, what's the point? Verse 42. Notice it carefully. If you've gotten a little glazed-eyed, this is where we got to wake up and look. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Again, verses 42 and 43 could be put much more succinctly, couldn't it? They finished the work. But notice how he repeats and emphasizes. They did it. God commanded it, and they did it. The work is complete. As Moses inspects everything that has been made, he seeks to make sure that it complies with God's instructions to him on the mountain, looking at every piece and saying, it must be just so. It must be precisely as God has laid out. We find here, again, tremendous parallels to creation. We have a graphic on this just to note this and think about it. And it really becomes a thrilling observation when you parallel this with the creation of the world, the creation of the tabernacle, the creation of the world. In both, there is a strong emphasis on the presence of the Spirit of God, who is part of this creation work. In the second line, we have that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, 
That Hebrew word used there, behold, is also used in Exodus 39. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Genesis 2.1, the heavens and the earth were finished. Exodus 39.32, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting was finished. In Genesis 2.2, God finished His work. In Exodus 40, we won't look at that today, but we find Moses finished the work. I don't think these parallels are simply accidental or coincidental. There is a creation project here. And what else I have not pictured here on this graphic, which will be very clear to us, is the Word of God. This phrase, depending on how you count them, as many as 18 times in these chapters and into chapter 40, as as God commanded, or as God said, or according to the word of the Lord. God is speaking here, as He did in creation. He is calling upon His people, however, here, not to be created, but to create. To build a tabernacle that will bring glory to God. And isn't it interesting, the first person that is said to be endowed with the Spirit of God in the Bible is not a prophet, is not a priest, but is an artisan, a creature made in the image of the Creator God who brings into being sanctuary. As Eden was a sanctuary for God's people, so now there is a new sanctuary. Sin has twisted everything This tabernacle, this place, is nothing like Eden in some respects. But the one thing that is similar is the presence of God dwelling among His people. He's there. He will reside over that ark in the inner sanctum. He will again be among His people as He was in Eden. And there is great beauty here, and there is creative design here. There are artisans that are working But of course, this is nothing like Eden itself. But again, it is, because God is here. And the emphasis that flows throughout that we must see is that God commanded Moses to do this. And they did it. The emphasis is not even on the completion of the tabernacle. We have open houses when we build a house or build a church building. There's an open house for everyone to come and to look at the building and to glory in what has been done and what has been accomplished. But it's interesting here, the emphasis is not upon Israel having an open house. Everybody come and take a look at the new tabernacle. The emphasis is what? In all of these chapters, the emphasis is on the people of God doing the work. The people of God not completing the tabernacle as much as constructing it. Not to admire the finished work, but the point is their active obedience. And these two ideas blend together throughout Scripture. There is God's purpose to meet with His people, and there's God's people's need to do what He says, such that this meeting is made possible. Someone once said that man does the proposing, but God does the disposing. And there's truth in that, isn't there? Any good we propose to do in this world must be empowered by God. The God who works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. But it is also true at times that God does the proposing and we do the disposing. Now it's in a different way, certainly. But the tabernacle is God's design. This isn't Moses' design and Israel's design. And then they bring it before God in prayer and say, will you please bless this and bring it about? 
There's times when that's appropriate. But here it's the other way around. Here God issues the design. And he commissions Israel to get it done. In community, moved by the Spirit of God, they build a tabernacle emphasizing the holy transcendence and gracious forgiveness of the Lord. Together, they build a sanctuary where God will dwell among them, according to God's Word. They did it together. They did it in community. They did it with free will offerings and by the outpouring of spiritual gifts that God had given in energetic endeavor to bring glory to the name of the Lord. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, to us as God's people on this side of the cross. The building plans have changed radically since the coming of Christ, but the agenda is very similar, isn't it? We have come to know that all of this tabernacle in its dealing with sin and emphasizing the holiness of God is fulfilled where? It is fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Christ's death and resurrection, the holiness of God and the grace of God toward sinners is met in one place. Jesus Christ bearing the penalty of sin and God in His mercy raising Him from the dead to give life to His people who come to Him in faith. We now stand at the fulfillment of all that we see here in this tabernacle. We find that fulfillment in Jesus Christ. For as the body of Christ, the building of God, we see Jesus as the one who tabernacled among us. John chapter 1 and verse 14. He is the propitiation for our sins 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. That is, He is the, the mercy seat, the place where the blood is placed for the forgiveness of the sinner. He is our table of fellowship, the one who is the living bread, who will, once we eat of Him, we will never hunger again. He is the source of fellowship with God. He is the lamp, John chapter 1 and John chapter 8 and verse 12. This light who has come into the world, this one who lights all the world. Jesus is this light. He is the table of incense. He is the interceder at the Father's right hand, ever living to intercede for us lifting His prayers to the Father in our behalf. And on that horrible day, He was the burnt offering. He was the one who laid down His life and bled in slaughter for our sins. In that earthy way, on that rugged cross, with all of the cruel despite that surrounded him and the torture, there he died as the ultimate sacrifice. Having come to faith in Jesus, he is the provider of that washing pictured in the laver. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who washes us in the purifying waters of the regenerating Spirit of God. So what is our building? Well, it's a church building, right? We bring different materials together and we build a sanctuary for God. 
No. Our building, too, just like all of this unique fulfillment in Jesus, is a very unique building. It breathes, it grows, it's alive. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. And in light of what we have seen in this great tabernacle, let us consider the building of God today, now on this side of the fulfillment of all of this in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, these words ring with power in light of Exodus. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, I'm picking up in the middle of a thought, but so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you ask someone in Israel as they're journeying to Canaan, what is the household of God? Perhaps they would speak of the family of Israel. But I think legitimately also they might point you to the tabernacle and say there's the household of God. There's where he dwells. But notice, we are the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We as the church of Christ are the building in which God dwells. By His Spirit. It's stunning truth. Chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you, Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a different calling upon our lives. Recognizing that we are the building of God, there is a calling of high moral holiness as a priesthood before the Lord. The washings and the sacrifices all pointing to us as the priesthood of God, those who have come to saving faith in Christ. We as a new priesthood come before the presence of God and are to come in holy garments of purity and simple things such as humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love and the like. This is our calling. This is our house. Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God's presence is in us. It's not in a building. It's not in a church building. It's in His people. Verse 15 of the same chapter, rather... Again, skipping so much. Verse 12, equipping the saints for works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's so much we could look at here in this chapter, but verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This body, this building, whatever analogy is used, as the building of God in Jesus enlivened by the Spirit, we form a living tabernacle commission to serve together to build up the church of Christ in love. This is our calling. This is our agenda. And we see the similarities with this call upon Israel's life, don't we? We see so many similarities as the people of God. There is to be giving among God's people to carry on His work. There is to be the use of spiritual gifts, including very physical use. We would have to say in parallel to this passage, there are other kinds of gifts. But using those capacities that the Spirit provides through salvation within the community of faith to carry on the work of God, whatever those gifts would be, Walking in careful obedience to God's Word, seeking unity with one another, and all of these ideas we see evidence for us in this passage of Exodus and paralleled here in Ephesians. Bear with me just a moment longer. James chapter 1. We must also come to terms as we consider this text in Exodus and our responsibility as the church in which Christ lives through His Spirit, we must consider our responsibility to the Word of God. God speaks and Israel obeys. And the great emphasis here at the end of Exodus 39 is that she did it. She did what God commanded her to do. And we see our calling is much the same. Chapter 1 of James and verse 21, Therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But, but, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be a doer of the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James marshals this argument with really consternation for those of us who believe in grace by faith alone in Christ alone. It shouldn't trouble us if we understand his point, but at first blush it does in James chapter 3. As we look at, I'm sorry, chapter 2, as we look at faith without works and this whole concept that he carries through in this chapter, we don't have time to look at it very carefully, but he speaks of faith without works being dead. Verse 17 particularly, where he says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There is this argument, but faith saves. Yes, it does. But the faith that saves is a faith that gets it done. A faith that acts, a faith that works, a faith that responds to the Word of God. We can know all the truths of the Bible and not respond to them in saving faith which acts and serves. We must ask ourselves then, in light of all of this, Christian, are you getting it done? 
Do we simply hear the word of God or do we indeed do it and act upon it? Grand dreams and clear visions of what God requires of us as his people are only the first step. They're an essential step. But we must actively obey his calling. Are we getting it done? We have grand intentions so often that do not get off the page. We need to bring it about. And in light of what we have considered, there is certainly a call for us here to consider our giving to the Lord's work, our service with our spiritual gifts, for husbands and fathers to not just talk about leading their homes spiritually, but to do it. For wives to honor God's call to complete their husbands and inspire their children for God. To not just have lists of ideas and plans of what we want to pull off someday, but to really pull it off by the grace and goodness of God. Singles using their singleness to advance the cause of Christ in community rather than being self-oriented. Again, great plans can go unrealized or setting aside of any sin to receive the implanted word. Is there sin in your life that holds you from God? Holds you from His purposes? You know the right pattern. You know the right plan. You know what God wants. But it's not happening. I invite you into the joy that Israel experienced here of working together with an assembly of people to do what God has said to do. It may take this morning a turning from sin in your life. It may take getting things off the page of plans and ideas and goals and getting it into action. You know what the Spirit is saying. And I encourage you to respond, to change the courses that need to be changed, to be encouraged as we go forward in obedience. And may 2007 find Eden Baptist Church working in this high calling of God as we pour out our material resources and serving gifts to advance the cause of Jesus Christ, who tabernacled among us, who paid the penalty of sin, and whose spirit lives within us with joy and power. May it be. Let's bow for prayer. We praise you, our Father, for your goodness to us in Christ, and pray that you will hear the cry of our great High Priest, how much we have skipped today and missed in this great section of Scripture. Father, as we plow through quickly, I pray that you would allow the truth to settle in over our hearts that you will help us to see what we need to see. And may we, like Israel, have a testimony that we not only received the command of the Lord, but that we did it. I pray for anyone today who has not come to saving faith in Christ. They have not repented of their sin and turned to Jesus as their Savior. I pray that they would obey the gospel. That they would obey and come to know the joy of Christ's forgiveness. Bring them to that place today and may they not rest until their soul is secure in Christ. For any of us and for all of us who know you as Savior, I pray God that we would consider anything that is in the way of our doing your word and fulfilling the responsibilities that you've given us. Father, may we repent and turn and may we seek your face and pour out our efforts 
and our capacities and all that you place in our hands for stewardship. May we pour them out to the glory of our Savior throughout this coming year. As you give life and opportunity, in the name of Christ we pray, amen.